You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. From Shakespeare to Schwartz, from Fosse to Alvin Ailey, from Sondheim to Borellis, from McNally to Fay, it happened to the greats, it still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. When lightning strikes, where you're meant to go, you can stand and shout your Hi, this is Gerald Brunner, and you're listening to When Lightning Strikes, where we talk about the heart-thumping, tingly, mic-drop moment that led you to becoming an artist. Mark Armstrong is the artistic director of the 24-Hour Plays, which brings together creative communities to produce plays and musicals that are written, rehearsed, and performed in 24 hours. Highlights from his tenure include annual productions of the 24-hour plays on Broadway, the Broadway and Los Angeles debuts of the 24-hour musicals, the growth of the 24-hour plays nationals, a free professional intensive for young theater makers, and the 24-hour plays viral monologues, the socially distant sensation, which has brought over 400 free new theater pieces to millions of viewers since the March 2020 onset of the pandemic. As a director, Mark has worked with playwrights, including Dan O'Brien, Emily Mann, Christopher Shin, and many, 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 many more. Learn more at 24hourplays.com. Well, welcome, Mark. It's such a pleasure to have you. Hi, Gerald. Hi. You know, when I think about the 24-hour plays, not that I go around quoting the Bible, but I found this great quote from Ecclesiastes that says, if you wait for perfect conditions you will never get anything done. And I think that's kind of the linchpin, especially now with viral monologues, because it's extraordinary to me how you produce not only multitudes and multitudes of these these phenomenal monologues, but they have so much heart and humanity and sensitivity and... They really speak to me. What, what if somebody were to say, can you describe what the 24 hour plays is? What would you say? Well, I love that quote that you brought in because although I like to think that um, we have high standards and I have high standards as an artist, there's a difference between high standards and perfectionism. Yes. And I think that something that happens artistically when you let go of perfectionism is you open yourself to spontaneity and inspiration and joy. And the thing that attracted me to the 24-hour plays, which I was involved with as an artist long before I worked here, it was my artistic home for my work as a director. And that lightning in a bottle sense that it was the world and the art that were happening at the same time was what really drew me in. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. If somebody were to ask you, what are the 24-hour plays and how did you start? What would you say? I would say we are, we're the creators of the 24-hour plays. And after that, the 24-hour musicals. It is um, an artistic process and an organization that were started by a passionate group of friends in the 1990s led by our founder, Tina Fallon, and they were young, they were working three jobs, um, they had no time, no money, no space, but they all wanted to get together and make work in that way that artists want to get together and collaborate. So they said, okay, we've got no time, so we'll all just have to try to get together on one day. You know, We'll see if we can make that happen. And we have no space but we'll try to get into a theater on a dark night. Maybe someone will let us use their space on a Monday and we have no money to pay royalties for any plays. So we'll have to write all the plays ourselves. So we'll get together, we'll have this empty space, we'll write all the plays ourselves and then we'll perform them. And that was at Teatro Latea on the Lower East Side in 1995. And it was a great group of original artists. Will Eno wrote his first play that night and we have a, we have a, a, a still image from a video of him on a manual typewriter typing away. <laughs> and, you know, this was before I was involved. But the way that the story has been passed down to me was that it was so much fun that the artist wouldn't let them stop doing it. And <laughs> they tried to say, oh, that was just a thing we were doing one time. We have lots of other producing projects that are. But that was the one that stuck. And the artists kept asking to come back and do it. So they would do it again and again and again. And that was how it started, was that it came out of a, a, a demand from artists to work together in this way and to see their work realized in this way. And as we have grown the organization, um, I have constantly been reminded that the reason that we are here is because artists love connecting with each other and working together in the way that we work, you know, and if they didn't want to do it, we would not be here. That's, um, that's the whole game. And I love the linchpin that artists have all they need. Yeah. That we have all the resources to create, right? Isn't that, is, can you talk about that, that you don't need millions of dollars? You don't need to wait until you're cast. You can create your well, own plays. Right? One of the things that I like about the 24-hour plays artistic process is that it's based on what artists can do in, um, in the theater industry. And I work as a director, so I am constantly experiencing this you sort of choose a play and then you try to cast the play and you say here's what we're looking for can you do that and try to find people who can you know fulfill what um the play and the vision of its playwright requires in the 24-hour plays we we get 24 actors together six writers six directors we meet up the night before and everyone brings a prop and a costume. So they'll say, here is a large box of adult diapers. 
and set it in the middle of the circle. Here is a life-size bee costume. And they'll set that in the center of the circle. And they'll say, here are my special skills. I can sing. I can speak Russian. I can stand on my head for up to 10 minutes. And something that I've always wanted to do on stage, but have never had the chance to do, is to play a love interest or to dance or to die slowly in a horrible death scene. And they go around. It is as fun as the show. The writers are taking notes about all of these things that actors are good at and the things that they want to do. So it flips the it flips the traditional casting process on its head. It's not about here's what we're looking for, can you do this? It's about the actor saying, here's what I can do and here's what I dream of doing. What can you do with that? And that is to me the joy of actors and writers connecting. And what's astonishing is that within what 12 hours they the playwrights write a play. We stay up all night and yeah um when you know for um you know 25 years our events live and in person we have six writers stay up all night somewhere along the line they got the idea that um the 24 hour plays weren't challenging enough so the 24 musicals needed to be created and composers and lyricists and copyists and music directors came on board for that but everyone stays up all night and writes these plays that are specifically for these artists and for this moment. And people often ask us, do these plays ever go on and have a further life? And the answer is that sometimes some of them do, and more often some themes that are touched on by a writer may be explored in the future in their body of work. But we believe that those plays are written for that moment and for those people, and they find their fullest expression in that moment. That's beautiful. I think of Jake Gyllenhaal, you know, at the window and how, and yeah, uh, David Lindsay Bear and Janine Tesori wrote that piece, I right? Did. Um, yeah, and then- yeah, that was that was a moment where we were all inside, and that is a play about what it was like to be inside during the pandemic. Ah, they're so beautiful. They really touch my heart. Let's talk about your lightning strikes moment when you knew you had to be an artist, when you had to choose this path or several lightning strikes moments in your life. You know, I've had several opportunities to talk about these moments. And when I thought about coming on this show, there was one moment that I don't know is a story that I have ever told before, but it was so important to me. When I was in the ninth grade, I had an English teacher who really liked the theater. 
And I was struggling with a lot. Um, and I was not performing well in school. And for the sort of the final marking period of the first semester, I got a D in this English class. And the teacher pulled me aside and I said, okay, here we go. And she said, at the semester break, I want to switch you to my advanced English class. And I said, I got a D. Well, why, why do you want to switch me into the advanced class? And she said, I think you're just bored. And her name was Mary Kay Cannonan. And at the semester break, I switched from the regular English class to the advanced English class. And through that, um, we were studying Romeo and Juliet, and I had the chance to co-write with a friend and perform in a sort of 30-minute contemporary adaptation of Romeo and Juliet that my friend and I wrote on a Saturday afternoon. Um, I cast myself as Ben Bolio, and I performed in front of the entire school in this thing that I had written. And I don't know if a teacher would be allowed to go to a D student these days and say, I want to move you into the advanced class. I don't know if that's something that would be allowed now, but I think about that because then the next fall I, I, I moved on to high school and I got myself cast in a little role in the, in the school play, which was, you know, kind of cool for a sophomore in the high school. So that was a moment where someone saw me. And because the person who saw me liked the theater, I became interested in that. That's extraordinary. Does May all teachers see the gifts of their students in, in that profound way that she didn't just cast you off, that she really took an interest and that she gave you the fishing pole you know, to, yes, that's, does she know what transpired with you? How you know, how um, it came to be? About 10 years later, she came to see a show that I directed. It was an early play that I had directed professionally in Minnesota, where I'm from. And it was, for that region, a little bit of a hit. We extended for one week. And I remember she came and saw it, and she burst out of the theater in excitement and she was so happy. I was young at that point. I was 25. So I don't think that I had the maturity to actually say to her, this happened because of that moment. I don't know if you specifically remember um, this moment in my life that at that point had happened 10 years prior. I know that she knows that I went into the theater and that she got a chance to see some of my work, but I've told this story to friends, but I've never told it in a formal context before. And it occurred to me that I should when I was thinking about when lightning struck. That's beautiful. First, I wonder, where did you grow up in Minnesota? And, uh, and what was the play that she saw? I grew up in Duluth, Minnesota. Uh -huh. um, oh, like... Yes, like Bob Dylan, right? Yep, indeed. Yep. <laughs> and uh, it's a town of about 85,000 people um, right on 
Lake Superior. It's an amazing place in a way that I did not appreciate when I was growing up there. Now, every chance I get, I go back to Minnesota in the summer and try to spend time in Duluth to make up for the years in my adulthood where I, you know, where I didn't spend as much time there. And I, the play I mentioned was a play called Five Women Wearing the Same Dress by Alan Ball. It was a, it was a summer comedy, which I think um, hit the right notes for people in that time. It was a contemporary play from that era. And yeah, she came to saw it, see it with another teacher friend. Um, in retrospect, that you know was um, ten years after the story that I told, and this, of course, is you know going back many years, many more years than that. Now, there's more distance between now and that moment than there was between that moment and me being fifteen. But I grew up in Duluth, Minnesota, and why, it's a big part uh, of my life. Why is it amazing? You said it's Duluth is amazing. Is it the the landscape, the lake, the it's a it's primarily the lake and also because it's a four season city um it has very very brutal winters um and but the summer is nice because you're right on the lake and the way that the former mayor of Duluth um Don Ness puts it is that Duluth isn't a city that makes things easy for people You've got to plug in your car. It's right on the side of the hill. You literally have to walk up the hill if you want to go see your neighbor. It's built right into the side of a hill. Um, and the weather is extreme. And it is not close to anything. It's, you know, a two and a half hour drive from Minneapolis and St. Paul. So the people that are attracted to Duluth are not because it's easy, but because, as Don says, they're looking for excitement. They're looking for a sense of adventure. So I think what I liked about the artistic community there was because it was so physically hard to get anything done, you know, these extreme winters, the side of a hill, you'd load your music gear into a car in the snowstorm because everything was difficult. Um, it, I think brought out the challenge in making things Happen. So people who were drawn to kind of liking a challenge, I think, responded to the extreme kind of northernness of that city. I, sometimes I hear a place chooses you. <laughs> so tell me, how did you become an artist? How did you go from being in Duluth to coming to New York? Or what was that trajectory? Well, for you? Um, I had... You know, I loved the theater like a lot of people. I didn't think that I would or could make it into a career. Um, and when I went to college, I thought, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna minor in the theater. Um, that way I'll be able to sort of experience um, the joy that I felt in those moments when I was able to be part of the theater and then I started to take all the classes from my minor and no classes for any kind of a major. And it just became pretty clear that the writing was on the wall, that I, I was an adult now and I could do what I wanted. And what I wanted was to 
hang out in this college theater department and see what I could do there. What and college? Oh, what college I, did you go to? I, I went to the University of Minnesota in Duluth, where I'm from. So I, I lived in Duluth for 25 years before I lived anywhere else. Um, I, I lived a couple places where I was when I when I was like one or two years old. But you know, we moved back to Duluth when I was three, and then I was there till I was 25. So that was that was where I lived, and I I gravitated towards the theater department, which had a BFA program in the theater. And I knew that I wanted to be part of it, but didn't necessarily know, know where I fit in. So I acted a bit in some plays. I had some experiences working as a sound designer. I tried my hand at being a stage manager. And then a great teacher from Chicago came to Duluth. His name was Bill Payne, and he was a theater director from Chicago. And the way that he taught classes were about how having a bunch of different interests and skills could combine in the work of the theater director. And I remember writing papers for that class and thinking, oh, this is how I can collect all of my seemingly disparate interests in history and contemporary news and performance theater and design theater and all of the things that I had dabbled in through my life seem to connect in the work of the theater director. And also because I didn't consider myself to be a person and don't consider myself to be a person who had a natural talent. Theater directing seemed to me, and I still think this to be something that a person can learn. Um, they, it's something that you can apply yourself towards and get better at and better at. And, um, so it was, it was something that I decided to apply myself to because I thought that I could be good at it and continue to get better and continue to improve. And whether or not I had a talent was not relevant. I just had to keep showing up and working. Uh, yeah, I think about Minnesota. I love Minnesota, by the way, and I have written stories about Minneapolis and its thriving community, the thriving com theater community. That there are actually there are people there who are working actors in the various theaters. When you think about the Guthrie and all the the children's theater, and uh, so okay, so yeah, how did you? It, um, the yeah. thing I would say about that community is we do the twenty four plays, and now the twenty four musicals there. Every year, um, the pandemic caused us to take a year off. But one of the things that I wanted to do was to bring the 24 plays back to Minnesota. And the, the first time we did it, it was um, wonderful. And we, they would ask if we could bring some special guests from our Broadway shows. And I'll ask anybody anything. So I said, hey, I can't promise anything, but I'll ask people. And, you know. You know, some people came and it was exciting. And But the thing that was the most exciting about it was on a Monday night in Minneapolis, everyone was there. Like artistic directors from a bunch of other theaters were there. It was the thing. And in New York, when we do our show on Monday night, the 24 plays on Broadway, it's exciting. But it's also gala season. There's another event that's happening somewhere else. And sometimes this person's available and sometimes they're not. But when we did our show in Minneapolis, everyone was there. So what we leaned into with that show and 
what I would love to do in these great theater cities all around the country is bring together the talent that's there. And the most recent show we did in Minneapolis was our best because the focus was, look who is here. Look how amazing this community is. And look at the collective power of the artistic community in the Twin Cities. And they are all here and they are all together. And that that's what I like doing is that we can go into any community and help them reveal what they have. What brought you to the 24 hour plays? I was new to, I was new to New York. I had, I had left Minnesota and I had gone to graduate school. Um, and I had studied directing with a great teacher, Marshall Mason and, oh. um, another great teacher, Victoria Holloway. Where and, was this? Um, I, I went to Arizona, yeah. I went to Arizona state. Um, I was uh-huh. living in Minnesota and thinking, okay, um, this is great. Um, but it occurred to me that my, my mom and my grandma and my great grandma, they had all lived in Duluth and, um, that, um, if I was going to go somewhere and do something else, um, have any sort of experience, um, the time was now. So I was trying to learn about being a director. And in school, we had read this book, The Director's Voice, which was a bunch of interviews with contemporary directors. And there were two directors I liked. There was Marshall Mason, there was Greg Mosier. And Greg didn't really teach anywhere, but I found out that Marshall taught at this school in Arizona. So I, I applied to the school in Arizona, which in retrospect, I'd never been to Arizona. Like I, I didn't go there for an interview. I did, I talked on the phone, um, but I, I, I left Duluth in August and I flew to Arizona with all of my stuff and I started graduate school and um, both because of Marshall's belief in me personally um, and because he worked on new plays. He worked primarily with Lamford Wilson and with other great writers of his time. And there was an MFA playwriting program at that school. So that is how I got hooked on the writer and director collaboration and discovered even more so than being good at directing plays. What I was good at was working with writers to reveal what was there. Because when you do the first production of a play, you're not doing a conceptual take on the play the play doesn't exist yet. You're trying to work with the writer to reveal what it is that the play is. And my skill set seemed to lend itself better to that than a sort of big idea, conceptual approach to directing. And I also liked having a creative partner. Directing can be a little bit lonely. You form a bond with the cast but eventually they go back into the dressing room and they have their own culture back there and you're not part of it. And it's actually kind of weird if you show up in the green room. Um, and then in tech, you're there with the designers and you have that community. Um, but then they leave and then there's the audience community and then you're with the audience community. But if you have a playwright partner, they're there with you all the time. They're there at the design meetings. They're there at the rehearsals. They're there at the tech. They're there with the audience. So, it's a way to direct plays and also not be by yourself. 
I didn't come to New York until um, the early 2000s. So I didn't get involved with, I didn't get involved with the 24 hour plays. My first show was in 2003. I had, I had been in New York for a year or so. And because I was someone who had started directing plays early on in my 20s, and they were plays that were performed in front of an audience, and they were were reviewed by critics, and they were plays that had had a whole life cycle. The things that an early career director did in New York, which was to direct readings of plays that wouldn't get produced, and then if they did get produced, you wouldn't be the director, or you you know would work on these short plays or be part of various festivals. Um, it was... I don't want to say it was a letdown, but it was definitely um, it was definitely something that was really challenging for me. And when I found out about the twenty four hour plays, I thought, "Oh, this is perfect for me. I have a really fast energy as a person. I love working with writers. I don't like to rehearse stuff for a long time. I'm not one of those people who dreams of having a six month." rehearsal process for the same play i have no idea what i would do for that length of time so i started sending them my resume in this earnest young person kind of way i sent my resume and like an email the cover letter and i a week before one of their shows i think someone dropped out and um i was right there and tina fallon reached out to me and said are you available and all of a sudden, the next week, I was there, and I was directing a play that was on stage at the Atlantic Theater Company. It was a play by Steve Nadley Girgis, who was the hottest playwright in New York. His play, Our Lady of 121st Street, yeah. was running downtown. So oh it was God. an extraordinary moment for me, and I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, that play like that. that night starred our friend Craig Mums Grant, who passed away yeah. last week. Um, Mum starred in the first production of the 24 hour plays that I ever directed and obviously continued to work with the 24 hour plays as a writer and director up to and including the viral monologues. So he was an exemplar of the artistic community that I, that I fell in love with. Um, and um, so that's how, I got involved and they would continue to ask me to direct. And I had great experiences. I worked with Liz Merriweather and Jason Grote and a bunch of really great actors. And, but these were one night events that, you know, would happen every year or maybe even every couple of years. I was busy trying to, you know, make my way as a director. I had another sort of artistic administration life. Um, as a sort of aspiring artistic director, I was trying to build that side of my resume. I had kids and I, I never thought that the 24 hour plays would take up more space in my life. And what happened was Tina Fallon, who was the founder, um, was I think looking to transition the company in a way after her 20 years and she knew that I was looking to um, to go into institutional leadership. And so we made a plan for me to do that. And they 
um, had been existing as a as a fiscally sponsored, all volunteer based company, and they said, "Hey, we've got about twenty five thousand dollars in the bank. Um, we can't offer you much to start with, but if you want to take this on and see if you can help us take the twenty four hour place to the next level, we could use you." And there was an opportunity for me to combine my professional ambitions with growing the company that I loved and doing it with my friends. So that is what I've been doing. And it has, it's been an incredible joy and it's been challenging and it's been wonderful. And it has brought me into contact with so many artists who are people that I have admired for my whole life and people that are new to me. Um, we have the chance through our nationals program to bring up and introduce young artists. So that's how I came to the 24 hour plays is through my work as an artist and how I stayed at the 24 hour plays was that I was in the right place at the right time to put myself forward to help grow the organization so that the 24 hour plays not only aesthetic process and approach can be here for future generations, but also so that the 24 plays organization itself can be here and can be robust enough to survive long after all of us, you know, have moved on from our working days. That's what I see as my mission is to leave this place strong enough that it will be able to survive indefinitely into the future. Yeah, I think, my goodness, out of the gate with Steve and Laddie Gerges, you know, but that was, <laughs> <laughs> that's extraordinary. That you, so yeah. I, and I love the democracy of it all that you, it, here you have, you know, Kelly Lonergan and Matthew Broderick and uh, David Lindsay Abair. And then you have unknown playwrights or people who, who've never, you know, who, who don't have tons of playwriting credits and we're all in this together. You're all in this together. And uh, why is that important? And are there a couple, I know you've done that with hundreds and hundreds of plays. Are there moments that really stick out to you during your time? The moments that stick out to me are, I think the moments that were seminal for me, certainly that first play with Stephen and Mums, um, when Mums got on the stage at the end of the play in January 2003 and said, my name is Mums and I live in the United States of America. And right now we're dropping mad bombs over Baghdad. Um, that was, um, yeah, th that could only have happened with those people in that moment. And it, that was my introduction to the 24-hour plays. Certainly, I've gone on to have many, many more experiences where the work and the artists met the moment. People sometimes think that we prescribe people to write about current events or to respond in kind of a living newspaper way. We don't. Um, as a person who's participated, you know that we have the artists write whatever they want to write. Um, and we can offer through the actors some points of inspiration and 
some ways to get a creative conversation started, but we produce what people write. And to the extent that we have a body of work, looking back on it, that reflects the times that we lived in, it was because we did shows always. Um, the 24 Place Celebrity Gala started on September 24th, 2001. And a lot of those people were seeing each other for the first time in person after the events of September 11th. And all of those plays reflect emotionally the feeling of that. We've done our show after Hurricane Sandy. We've done it in London after the 7-7 bombings. Um, my first time doing it um, on Broadway in this role was after the the shootings in Paris in in, in 2015, um, which is why I think the viral monologues seemed like they had to happen because we have always made work after these events that we live through and the unique challenge of not being able to gather ultimately proved to be surmountable because artists wanted to come together and connect. Um, it was something that was easy for people to say yes to. They were at home and not sure what was even happening personally or professionally. If you remember those, not just those first weeks, but those first days, um, like, um, when everything was closed, people said yes to doing this. So we were able to, again, in the spirit of the 24-hour plays, they thought they were going to do it one time and it was going to be done. We thought we were going to do these viral monologues one time and it was going to be done. And I thought, um, A, we had no idea how long the pandemic was going to last. B, we had no idea if people were even going to do this or we were going to get these videos back or if it was going to be something that we could accomplish um, or we didn't know how it would be received. Like I always um, jest that I thought that agents were going to call me up and complain about me putting their clients on Instagram.tv and they did call me, but they called me to see if they could get other clients into the uh -huh. event. Were we doing it again? Because so-and-so had watched it and really wants to be a part of it. <laughs> so much like the 24 plays itself, the artistic community continued to demand more events. Yeah. I think about another lofty quote. <laughs> this one, I like quotes of a quote geek from Leonardo da Vinci who said, where the spirit does not work with the hand, there is no art. And I think that's the 24-hour plays because it's all about spirit. Because literally it was, you say, it was days after the shutdown, right? That you, that you decided, hey, we have to create these viral models. We have to move on. Why do you think that's so important? You're in the midst of, again, with all the tragedies that you mentioned that, yet you persisted, <laughs> dramatic, um, you know, that that was, that was so important to keep going, to not shut down. I think that either people think art is important or they don't. And sometimes when we have these tragedies, people question the nature of art and the purpose of art. And I never have, you know, 
I think that art is important and that it is an honor to be able to connect and communicate in that way. I would subsequently, um, in those following weeks, people would ask me to come and talk to their college classes about what this experience was like. And some of them would say, well, the class that I've been discussing, is this theater? Is it not theater? And I was surprised at how, how much I didn't know the answer to that question or, or that it wasn't on my mind. It was, oh, I'm a quote geek too. And the one that came to my mind was um, from this book by Sheila Hetty. I made what I could with what I had. Um, which I think is a, a sort of update on the Renoir quote that we must be of our time and work with what we see. And we, we make work in the way that is available to us. And that has been so much more satisfying for me than being in a bunch of plans and meetings and collaborations about things that people want to happen, but that don't wind up happening. Um, I just find that too hard as a person to think that something is going to happen and then be disappointed when it's not happening. When we put a date on the calendar and say we're doing the 24-hour plays, people know that it's happening. Yeah. How many rounds now have you done? Uh, we just uh, did our first round. <laughs> so so what what is your dream for the 24 hour plays this point uh, post pandemic my dream for the 24 hour plays post pandemic is that we are able to stay a small enough organization that we are able to respond in the scrappy immediate way that we are able to but also that we become big enough so that we can have the resources we need to preserve the organization and grow this work and share it with more people. One of my goals before the pandemic, which I was not successful at, was to get anchor partners in different theater cities throughout the United States. We have an anchor partner in Minneapolis and... I've wanted to do that in other cities. I love going to Los Angeles and I had always wanted to go back to Phoenix and I went to grad school there and we did a partnership with Sean Daniels, who's the great artistic director of Arizona theater company. So I was able to virtually go back to Phoenix with the 24 hour plays. And now I know that when theater opens up, I will be able to go physically to Phoenix and bring that community together for the 24 hour plays. We are starting a new, a new partnership that I have high hopes for with in Cincinnati to do the same thing there. So one of my visions for my time at the 24 hour plays is that we are able to have anchor partners in all of the cities that are doing incredible dynamic and unique work in the theater in a way that celebrates their communities. That's not about bringing something there with the implication that there's something not there. It's about going there and helping reveal what is there. So growing the organization structurally to the point 
where we have the opportunity to do that. That's extraordinary. And do you envision that the viral monologues will continue? I do I envision so. oh, that good. the viral monologues will continue. Um, <laughs> there's just no way. Like the genie is out of the bottle now. And I think that um, the opportunity to collaborate and connect with people in different places, not just audiences in different places, but artists in different places. Um, some of the original 24-hour plays people artistically um, are living in Los Angeles and they're doing film and TV things. And people always ask me, like, can we get so-and-so back? Can we get this person back? Um, but it's a little harder to ask someone, oh, you have to be in New York, a city that you no longer live in on this particular date, and you have to have nothing else on your calendar. But um, Clark Gregg was able to participate virtually from his home in Los Angeles. We hadn't had Clark with us in the show for almost 20 years. Um, Alan Arkin is 87 years old. He lives in New Mexico. He live streamed from his home in New Mexico. There's no way that happens in an in-person space. So the idea that we would give that up is inexplicable to me. I miss the theater as much as anyone who has made their life in the theater and I'm excited to see people and to be in an audience with people and to produce work in front of people. There's nothing like that. We're going to be back with our live events in New York and hopefully um, in other cities as well. But I do envision the viral monologues being one of our flagship programs that continues indefinitely. Certainly as long as I am here and have anything to say about it because it has been extraordinary, and also, they're free. I always scratch my head when people say, why won't people pay for Broadway theater tickets when they pay for big sporting events or big concerts? And it has always seemed obvious to me that if you pay for an expensive playoff sporting ticket or you pay to see a big musician in concert, that's the culmination of a fandom that you experience all year long. You're listening to that music or you're watching those sports games. It's not a one-off that you suddenly decided to drop a hundred bucks on. It is the culmination of something that you feel a part of. And what we're able to do with the viral monologues is have a no-cost barrier to entry for people to watch incredible artists and build that relationship with them and with us. So when you ask people to come to a play, it's not a sudden thing. It is more the culmination of a fandom that they experience all year long at a very low cost level. Well, Mark, oh my gosh, it's been such a gift to have you and an education. Oh. And uh, Thanks I'm for asking so such good questions. I feel like I got to talk about things. And I said this about your your that wonderful article you wrote too. Um, I've gotten to talk about things that I don't usually get to talk about. So that that's been really special. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. It's just it's I so believe in what you do and uh, may it continue and continue and continue. So thanks again. Uh, indeed. Thank you. Still happens every day when lightning
The theme song was written by Tom McGovern. This episode was edited by Kyle Moore, and the talent was booked by Anna Strauss. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the Rise Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. Rise is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.